1: Hello, fans of good books and good writing. Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and today is our More Fun Than a Barrel of Monkeys edition. (laughs) With me today is an author who, after writing several well-received books, nearly gave up writing entirely. Fortunately, she decided to give it one more shot. And just last month, that effort earned her the Philip K. Dick Award, which is given each year for the- (laughs) Yay! which is given each year for the best science fiction novel published as an original paperback. The book I'm talking about is The Theory of Bastards, and its author is the person you just heard, and her name is Audrey Shulman, and she's with me on the line from her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction.
0: Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's very, very kind. I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, congratulations on winning the Philip K. Dick Award. I, I know you were so surprised that you won that you didn't even have a speech prepared.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I felt really uh, bad for not thinking that, I, you know, not preparing anyway. Uh, but I just, I never win anything. I don't even win, win like bingo. So it uh, totally took me by surprise.
1: Before we dive into the book, I'm curious to know why you almost quit writing. You even mentioned that in the acknowledgments of the theory of bastards. So I wonder why you almost quit, and what brought you back? So
0: uh, I've had a hard time getting uh, published at at certain points, a lot. (laughs) I I feel uh, like I've had a harder time uh, getting published than many other writers, and maybe that's what every writer feels, but uh, let me just give you details so you can judge on your own. I started writing when I was 20 and I wrote a book a year every year for a decade. Uh, and I couldn't get any of them published. Uh, and it wasn't until the 10th book that I think my fifth book was picked up to be published. And, uh, that was called the cage. It got translated into, I think 11 languages and, uh, the New Yorker did a review and I got like a hundred other reviews. Uh, it was just an incredible reception. And then when I sent, you know, a year later in the novel that I wanted to get published next to the publisher that had published The Cage, they said no, Um, they didn't like the book and they didn't even like the font. They were fairly strong about the way they said it. Uh, And that happened again with, you know, like it it just seemed like I had a really hard time uh, getting the. Books published, but once they were published, they always got great receptions. So maybe every writer feels this way. I don't know.
1: I've heard often people having stories that are variations on the same theme, although I guess some stories are more extreme than others. But people who, you know, whose books are well received, I have heard of them having trouble getting published again, maybe because being well-received doesn't always translate into a lot of sales, and a lot of publishers care about money as the bottom line.
0: I've always been told, I don't, I, I don't know if this is true, but that the publishing industry before, uh, earlier than, say, the 80s, it was about publishing works that the publisher thought were really high quality and not so much about dollars per inch of bookshelf. So it might be that having publishing companies be owned by bigger and bigger companies have moved it more into a monetary equation, which isn't necessarily a horrible thing, but I feel like we miss a lot of the long tail distribution or the diversity of thought that could be out there. And I believe democracy depends uh, partly on having a really well-educated and and thoughtful population. And so I, I for many different reasons. I think that there should be a, as great a diversity of books out there as possible.
1: Well, your story, I think, is inspiring and in that you didn't give up and you decided to keep on trying. And so what, in fact, brought you back, made you decide, after having had these experiences, to write another book?
0: My editor at Europa decided to publish uh, my book just before Theory of Bastards, which was called uh, Three Weeks in December. And with him wanting to publish another book, I thought this is worth it. I mean, I've always wanted to write. There's nothing more I've wanted. And so given the opportunity, I couldn't say no. In the, in the case of Theory of Bastards, it was such a fun book to write, too.
1: Well, let's get into it then, and let's talk about why it was such a fun Book to write. Maybe we should lay out a little bit of the story. The theory of bastards touches on a lot of themes and has several plot lines. It's about bonobos, which are among or or maybe they are humans' closest relatives in the animal kingdom. And there's a storyline about technology and our growing reliance on it, or our, maybe even our over reliance on it. And the book also touches on climate change and sexuality. And maybe at its core, it's about the relationship and the past histories of your main characters, who are two scientists, Frankie Burke and David Stott, who are actually studying the bonobos. Maybe we should start with the bonobos.
0: You know, what I find amazing is that many people don't know about them. They're, they look basically like chimpanzees, except for they're a little skinnier and less muscular. Their hair tends to be parted in the middle as though they just So they just parted it with a comb and sort of slicked down a little bit like alfalfa and the little rascals. And they are just the sweetest, most gentle creatures. You know, we all uh, grew up with stories of like the violence of chimpanzees that will, with determination, go, you know, premeditated, go out and uh, hunt and kill another chimp in groups. So the story is always of this humans being related to this. You know, our, our closest relation being this violent, angry great ape. But in fact, some scientists believe that bonobos are even more closely related, or at least more like what is considered the missing link in terms of both the brain. They have von Economo uh, neurons, otherwise known as spindle cell neurons. They're the kinds that are associated with empathy and uh, self-recognition and humor and kindness and they're also just in terms of their body shape the the limb to uh, torso ratio etc they look a little bit like what Lucy would have looked like the earliest human relation
1: they seem in many ways more civilized than humans <laughs> I mean more peaceful more cooperative more loving that's almost like a a message coming from the book that's never explicitly stated, but they are so wonderful. And to tell you the truth, after becoming so fond of them from your book, I just Googled and read that they're actually endangered in the wild. And I thought it was strange that given that they're so closely related to us, there isn't a hue and cry about their decline.
0: Well, so most people don't know about them, and that's partly because they're overtly sexual. So their way of reducing aggression and violence is through having sex. They'll have it you know if under any tension. and so zoos won't have bonobos very often. there are a few that do, but not many do because the parents don't <laughs> won't know what to do with the kids if the the bonobos are constantly having sex in, in the zoo enclosure and you know PBS won't do a lot of specials on them because they'd have have to edit it so much. So we don't know a lot about bonobos, and therefore we don't understand that they are endangered, which is just terrible.
1: It's incredible that our prudishness would interfere with our interest and efforts to protect this very special species.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, doing research on them just made me happy. Because they're just so sweet and gentle. Like in all the research I did, the only case in which I found any bonobo attacking another one was just uh, one bonobo bit another one and, and broke the skin slightly. So a teeny bit of blood came out and everybody, you know, all the other bonobos were so horrified. They kept coming over and examining the hand as though this had never happened before, which is just remarkable. Friends de Waal is is one of the major researchers of them, of bonobos, and he just writes uh, beautiful, beautiful stories about the different episodes he's seen with them, where they care for one another or just how smart they are and kind.
1: (laughs) Did your research consist mainly of books? You have a research appendix at the end of the novel, so it's clear that a lot of the stories and the scenes of the way the bonobos relate to each other are actually based on real-life observations of scientists. I just wondered if you had any firsthand encounters with bonobos.
0: No, I tend to, you know, different people learn in different ways. And I learn really well from reading. And so I I just tend to read book after book after book until until it seems real to me. And so what I did in this book was take a lot of stories of the, from the researchers and weave it together into one narrative. So there's a point at which, for instance, uh, one of the bonobos comes upon a, a bird that had hit some glass and, and uh, fallen on the ground. And so the bonobo like, looked at the bird for a while and sort of, you know, which seemed to be unconscious and opened its wings and touched it very gently trying to figure out what was wrong and then picked it up and Climbed to the top of a climbing structure and threw the bird back into the air and then seemed really baffled when the bird didn't begin to fly because it was either unconscious or, or dead. If you think about that, the bonobo understood the bird needed help and was trying to return it to its element, which is such an interesting image and story. But there, there are a lot of them, of stories like that, where like the, there's a, a classic bit of research where you have a, basically a tray of food on wheels uh, with a rope around it so that in order to pull it towards you, the, the rope is not tethered to the tray in any way. Two different uh, animals have to pull it toward them together at the same time, cooperate. Um, and when this research is done with chimpanzees, it takes them a long time to understand what they need to do. And then as soon as the tray of food is pulled close enough, they start fighting to grab the most amount of food, whereas bonobos will understand really quickly uh, and will never fight over the food once they get it close enough. They're just kind creatures uh, and it comes through so much in the research.
1: Well, one of the beautiful things about your book, I think, is that we see the bonobos through one of the scientist's eyes. Well, maybe both are eyes, but the main character is Frankie Burke. And she's discovering them as we're discovering them. And you've really layered some of the stories that you've described just now. Uh, As she's discovering them, we are discovering them. And it feels like a real building of knowledge. And in her case, she actually has a a thesis she wants to prove. And that thesis is, in fact, the title of your book. It's The Theory of Bastards. And I wondered if you could explain, what is The Theory of Bastards?
0: So first off, I was so excited with the title because this way I get to swear a lot in public. But uh, the, ba- the basic idea of The Theory of Bastards is, some research has shown that approximately 10% of children human children are not actually related to their fathers. So, and I'm not, and I'm not sure there is some research that I'll just qualify this slightly, that that number is less than I'm saying, but I'm not, uh, when I wrote the book, it was 10%. So, you know, you have to wonder why there is such a huge percentage of children that are not related to their fathers. What is the evolutionary benefit of that? because there has to be a big benefit to be able to do that because the dangers are so big for getting pregnant uh, illegitimately I guess for having a bastard <laughs> and so the theory that my character comes up with Frankie Burke is that that it offers genetic benefits the basic idea is that the the fathers being selected by the mothers are being selected because they will improve the child's immune function So she comes up with a a theory about why such a large percentage of human children are created through affairs, basically. Um, And it gets her a lot of renown because it's a fairly unusual theory.
1: And is it a theory that you invented on Frankie's behalf or is it something that has in fact been researched at one time or another?
0: I think I wove it together. I mean, the thing about writing is that at least my experience of writing is it's a little bit like driving in a car during a car accident, right? You have just images left over afterwards and you have to sort of piece them together to try to figure out how it all happened. So I'll give you what I think happened. I think I did an enormous amount of research and I came up with the theory on my own and it was just pulling making logical assumptions based on all the research I did about sexual attraction and uh, immune function. There's, there's some really interesting research about how uh, one researcher had men sleep in t-shirts and then uh, took those t-shirts and put them in cardboard boxes and had women smell the t-shirts through the holes in the cardboard box So that the the women don't even know what they're smelling, right? Uh, And they would be choosing, they would say this smells good or that one does not. And the t-shirts that they would select would be of men who had a different immune function than they did. So what we tend to do is we select people who have a different immune function so that our children will have stronger, more robust immune functions than we do because viruses and parasites will evolve way faster than we long-lived humans can. So it's critical (laughs) for the health of our children to have a really strong, healthy immune function. So I just made assumptions based upon that, and that's how I came up with the theory, or I believe I came up with
1: the theory. And I guess in Frankie's mind, the bonobos, because they are freewheeling, as far as sex is concerned, are sort of expressing perhaps this urge, the female's urge or intuition or programmed desire, programmed by their DNA, desire to find the the best match uh, as far as the immune system is concerned. Uh, so it's the, they' they're the purest form of that, whereas humans, presumably, because of our cultural restrictions, laws, customs, mores, even if a woman perhaps feels a desire to be infidelitous, in an individual case may repress that. Although not always, obviously, if that if that ten percent number or anything even like it is is true, obviously people do go out outside the bounds of monogamy if that's what the culture they're in, if asked for monogamy or so called requires it. Um, but is that the idea?
0: But I, no, I think it's slightly different. That I think humans pretend that we are different, but we are not. And what's really fascinating to me is humans are the only animal that I know of that goes off to have sex in private, right? That feels that it's a function that others should not see. And uh, part of the reason I think is because uh, there's a lot of secrets that go on there, right? So it, it enables infidelity in many ways. And I I think that instinct, or this would be my, my gut feeling is that that instinct that humans have of like, this is something done in private is partly to enable all sorts of stuff to happen that wouldn't be considered kosher. (laughs) I mean, in, in terms of infidelity in the wider human society and What's interesting with the bonobos is they don't have that, right? They'll have sex in front of you, in front of every, you know, their entire bonobo clan. And this was fictional. This I do not think, you know, I've never read any research that says this about bonobos. My theory is about bonobos because I'm going to back up for a minute. They have sex with intercourse with anyone, anytime, anywhere, right? And you can't have that. If you have evolution also, because then there's the, if they're, if the females are getting, are having sex, when they are fertile with anyone, they will quickly end up with a six toed. Uh, <laughs> they'll end up with all sorts of bad evolutionary results, right? There'll there'll be cousins having, se- you know, uh, offspring together. It will be bad news. No one will be selecting the most fit, Mate possible for their offspring. So, my theory with the bonobos is that when the females are fertile, I'm betting, and uh, it'll be really interesting if any researcher ever contacts me and tells me if this is true, that they do, that they are secretive at that point, that they uh, head off with the male that they do think would be the best ideal father for their offspring. Because otherwise, I doubt bonobos would be so smart or able to even stand up straight. Because <laughs> evolutionarily, they wouldn't be fit, if that makes sense.
1: So that's, in the book, what in fact happens. So Frankie begins to see what she thinks is this behavior. So that's interesting to hear that that's where you depart from bonoba behavior as it's represented in all the books you have in the appendix.
0: Yes. I just assume they can't possibly be not selecting well for genetic material at the point that the females are, are fertile, because if so, they, they'd they be unevolving back down to amoebas or something.
1: On your website, you have a Q&A section, and you tell a story that basically explains that you have a personal connection to this idea, that this idea has emerged from your personal life experience. And I, I was hoping you could elaborate a little on that uh, right now and explain, explain what that personal connection is.
0: So my parents were divorced partly because my mom was unfaithful. And so that's always made me think about fidelity and made me sort of wonder on it. And our human obsession, female fidelity, always seems just interesting uh, to me. The, the part of the book is about uh, Frankie, the the character, spends a lot of time like looking at movies about unfaithfulness or trying to find them, and uh, she can't because there aren't all that many. There are TV channels that are just devoted to the Civil War, right? They're just show after show after show after show. But if you're looking for movies about what should be an incredible story. I mean, it's got love, it's got automatic tension, right? Uh, if you have infidelity, there aren't that many. And I think that's partly because a lot of directors are male and uh, just are in, don't wanna talk about that subject. Or anyway, that's, that was yet another of my theories which I have just so much fun in the book developing. But the book's not all about theories. It sounds that it's a science book or something. It's, it's not. I try to, I've always enjoyed books where I learn something and at the same time, I'm deeply engaged in the plot and the characters. That, for me, is an ideal book where the, the writer is not talking down to me, but is instead giving me all sorts of interesting chunks of information that I can chew on and digest as I am utterly pulled forward by by both the plot and deeply uh, worried about the character. That's that's my kind of book. And I hope that that's what this book is.
1: You no, know, it's definitely that kind of book. So now is a great time to segue, to talk a little bit more about, I think, Frankie and who she is. She's someone who, who in many ways seems to have withdrawn from the world due to various reasons— having suffered both, I think, in some personal relationships with men, but primarily having suffered a lot of pain because she had or has endometriosis. And by the time we meet her, it's almost as if she's given up on on human relationships. And it seems as if as she becomes more and more connected to the bonobos, it helps her return to humanity because she seems to become more and more drawn to her colleague at the foundation as well, uh, David Stotts.
0: Yeah, I thought it was, uh, so uh, Frankie is an evolutionary psychologist and I thought it would be really fun to have somebody who was really interested in evolution be unable to reproduce (laughs) because there was that, there's an interesting irony there. And then also for me, the book is all about what it's like to be in a body and how being in a body affects you. So the bonobos are are in one kind of body, and you know Frankie's in another kind, and David Stotts is in another kind, and each, the strengths, the weaknesses of each is sort of played out through the book.
1: It's interesting because Frankie has recently had surgery, has had hysterectomy, actually, mm-hmm. and so when the book opens, she's quite debilitated from that surgery, and over time, she grows more and more strong and then the plot takes a, a sharp turn. So it's a good thing, in fact, that she's she's more physically able to to get around, because she really needs to. And I guess, in a way, it's a bit of a spoiler. But it's hard not to talk about the book without addressing what happens in the second half somewhat. And that that really is more about, in some ways at least, the setting is about technology. Because the book is set in the near future, there's all these technical, techy, whiz-bang things that people benefit from, and one of them is these implants that everyone seems to have, and that feeds data to lenses in their eyes, and everyone just kind of assumes that that'll always be there, and they rely on them kind of the way we rely on phones. That's what I was thinking, that they basically have lots of apps that just play right, right in front of their eyes. And then something happens halfway through the book. There's a dust storm, and it seems to zap everything. And Frankie and Stotz are left behind to take care of the bonobos during the dust storm. And they become increasingly desperate. I mean, the plot really becomes almost an adventure story because it's like, how are they going to survive without maybe food in this place where everything, while all the technology that they've come to depend on has completely failed? And it's almost like two books in one. And I I wonder if there's something you could say about that, about your decision to to take that sharp left turn.
0: I mean, I love books that have uh, a killer plot, like where all sorts of things happen um, and where I'm deeply drawn in and, and can't stop reading. But I also love smart books. So a lot of my books start off where it's, you're just getting used to the character and the ideas, and then they go strong into the plot, which at that point should be the vehicle for those ideas in a way. But for me, where this book came from was, or partly was like I was once at a at a Whole Foods, and there was a, a, I think it was the same day. This, there was a guy in like aisle number four, looking at all the cereals, clearly unable to find anything to eat and I think the same day I bumped into somebody or somebody asked me for directions and he was holding an iPhone in his hand, uh, with Google maps on it. I just, I find us. So as a species, we are deeply capable, right? We're capable of making iPhones and uh, Google maps, but we aren't capable of finding food in aisle number four or, uh, in migrating across town, much less thousands of miles away. Um, I find us just, a species with these incredible strengths and incredible weaknesses and I wanted to explore that in this novel and I've always loved dystopian novels, post-apocalyptic ones right, but it's almost always only able-bodied humans that survive nobody ever pulls their pet corgi out of the rubble and marches on and I just thought it would be really interesting to sort of play out what would happen if a relatively capable somewhat similar to humans, species survived with humans post-apocalypse and, or something there, you know, something similar to an apocalypse and what that would be like. And that was my dog scratching at the door. (laughs) I'm going to let her in in hopes that she uh, gets a little quieter.
1: When they leave the foundation with the bonobos in tow, Frankie and Stotts survive by breaking into homes and eating prepackaged food. Mm-hmm. Whereas the bonobos, I mean, they can run around and find food when they go into a field, they start digging up potatoes. Like they have a much more natural and intuitive method of surviving, it seems, although you know, you raise a big question and who will be able to survive better, the bonobos or the humans?
0: Yeah, and I, I just thought that that was a really interesting question to begin to look at. I feel like we are, you, you know the, the term superorganism? It's, you know, like uh, bees, you know, honey honey hive, uh, a beehive is is a superorganism where any one bee on its own even though it's in a separate body, could not survive on its own, uh, you know, away from the hive. And I feel like humans are somewhat of uh, a superorganism, right? That on our own, out in the wilderness, we don't tend to survive very well. That we need society as a whole functioning as one organism to enable us to, to do well. Whereas I think bonobos and other great apes are not that way as much. And I just wanted to to play with that concept. I also wanted to to play with the idea that Frankie in some way through the book regained her humanity by being around the bonobos, by being around non-humans. And and she's able to, to feel more, to care more for others, to, to become more healthy by just learning to care about the bonobos. So I, I just had, I played with all sorts of things throughout the book in a way that was great fun for
1: me. And I think the last thing I I thought uh, would be interesting to touch on is to talk a little bit about climate change, because I understand that you co-founded an organization that tries to reduce the leakage of natural gas. I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the leakage of natural gas into the environment, which seems to me connected to climate change. And I, I wondered how that work connects with themes in your writing.
0: You know, I think climate change is the biggest threat to humans and other life on this planet. Uh, It's the biggest moral question facing humanity. It's the biggest practical question. And I can't understand why more writers aren't. I mean, I know that there's a lot of climate fiction beginning to be out there, but it seems remarkably little for the incredible plot (laughs) that is just clear about climate change. You know, we've never had anything, anything, uh, you know, such an existential, huge species-wide threat as climate change and even multicellular threat as climate change. Uh, I've always wanted to write about it in more depth. And I got to with this book. It's just a great plot, right? <laughs> you know, the, the climate starts to go wacky. Uh, all sorts of things are going to happen. I don't know if you can hear my dog jumping around in the background, but
1: well, n- not too much, but I suppose your dog cares about climate change as much as as much as you do.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, but ever since my eldest child was born, who was born in the year two thousand, just made all the scientific predictions of climate change so uh, deeply personal because they're in you know twenty thirty when he turns thirty or twenty fifty when he's fifty. And so uh, because of that, I, I, I just care beyond the fact that I'm awfully fond of this planet. And most of my friends are, are multicellular.
1: And and as nice as the bonobos, I hope.
0: <laughs> I I only wish they were.
1: So has the Philip K. Dick Award encouraged you now? Are you going to keep writing? Are you working on something else?
0: Yeah, I'm working on a, a new novel about uh, dolphins. So I I seem to be very... I feel like every writer... If they're very lucky, they figure out the themes that allow them to do their best writing, and I seem to have very, very narrow themes. so I, if it's got a some large charismatic megafauna, a, a hint of possible violence, you know a different climate, and some uh, possible scientific research, I oh and a, and a, you know the main character has to be in a body that's somehow physically different from most other people. Those are sort of the themes that allow me to write as well as I possibly can. So this book has almost all of that in it.
1: Well, that sounds great. And I can't wait to read it. I hope the publishers are clamoring for it when it's done. (laughs)
0: That would be nice. Maybe every writer has as hard a time. I certainly think it's a hard time for anybody to get published.
1: Well, you know, I hear lots of stories. I myself am going through it as well. And it always sounds like everything is a hurdle. There's never coasting unless you're that 1% of best selling author whose books, you know, generate millions. So everyone wants to publish them. But getting an agent takes forever if you're lucky to ever get one. And then the agent yeah. can take forever to find the publisher, and that can take forever. And then it gets out. And then, you know, selling, actually getting the book sold can take forever. So, there's no guarantees in in life and in writing.
0: Yeah. Before getting published, I always thought that once I got published, everything would change. You know, after that, it would be simple. And so it was surprising to me when it just sort of continues. It's still hard, (laughs) but I feel very, very lucky to be able to to write and to and to get published, at least for the books that I have so far.
1: Well, thank you so much for your writing and for coming on New Books in Science Fiction.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for for inviting me on it.
1: I've been talking to Audrey Shulman, the author of The Theory of Bastards, which just won the Philip K. Dick Award. If you don't subscribe yet to New Books in Science Fiction, I invite you to sign up using your favorite podcast app. That way you won't ever miss an episode, and please consider leaving a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I'm at robwolf.net and on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thank you for hanging out with us today.